Did you ever see those Jesus movies from the 1960s and 70s? The ones where following Jesus and embracing flower power are sometimes indistinguishable. I think at the center of those, the narrative rests on the Sermon on the Mount where you have Jesus wandering aimlessly through the hills with the Beatles, all you need is love playing in the background and Jesus puts a few flowers in his disciples' ears and on he goes. I hope this isn't disappointing to you, but the Sermon on the Mount is actually nothing like that. What we have today in Matthew 5 is actually a subversive and radical sermon because Jesus takes established norms and established customs and he turns them on their heads and says the things that you're told have worth and value actually may look quite different than you think. We're in Matthew 5, if you would like to follow along, it's on page 809 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 5, first 12 verses. These verses break down into nine couplets, as they're called, where you have a title and then a matching condition. These verses are paralleled in Luke chapter 6, and there it's called the Sermon on the Plain. But here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have the Sermon on the mount, and as I'm sure many of you know, these verses we're looking at today are commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. They're called that because of this repeated phrase, blessed are, blessed are. And what's interesting is we learn a lot about Jesus' meaning here by just looking at that word, blessed or blessing. In the Greek New Testament, there are two words primarily used to speak of blessing. One of the words is the type of blessing that we would ask from God. Would you bless our house, O Lord? Or would you send your blessing upon our family? That's not the word used in the Beatitudes, and that's very telling. In the Beatitudes, the word is the word makarios, And in the New Testament, makarios is a word that is a statement of something that's already true. It's already an established condition. Here's how one scholar puts it. Makarios is a state of existence in relationship to God in which a person is blessed from God's perspective even when he or she doesn't feel happy or isn't presently experiencing good fortune. That's significant for us because in Matthew 5, we're given a picture of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. And when we talk about God's kingdom, we often use this language of the now and the not yet of God's kingdom. You've probably heard that before. Each week we pray, thy kingdom come. There's something about God's kingdom we still look for, we still long for, and we want to see it come in our world And yet Jesus, in his own words, said, in me the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For the Jewish audience who would have heard this sermon, to speak of God's kingdom was to speak entirely of God ruling and reigning as king. Think of Psalm 10. The Lord is king forever and ever. Many people have put it this way. They said, think of a country that's been at war ravaged by war, injustices, cruelty in the land, and hundreds of miles away from the people, a peace treaty has just been signed. From that peace treaty, a runner leaves and rushes to bring the news of peace, the news of victory. And as they bring that news, that peace is certain, yet for those people, there may still be months and months in which that peace doesn't actually affect their lives. 
they still wait for the fulfillment of what has happened in that peace treaty. Yet that news has dramatically altered their hopes and their lives as well. For us, the promise of what we are to receive in God's kingdom as his sons and daughters dramatically affects the way we live our lives now. How about a simpler illustration? Over the past few weeks, as many of you will have heard, my family and I are in the process of relocating to Atlanta to be closer to family. It's bittersweet news, but for us, comes with great joy as we have three young children and are in desperate need of help. (laughs) What all of you have said as I've spoken with you about this, almost to a person of you said, you are so blessed to be near family. What a gift it is for you to be close to your family. And while it's dramatically overstating it, you could still say, we're suffering from the lack of family because it's three months away, they're 800 miles away. And so what's been promised, what you all have said is a blessing we haven't actually yet encountered. In God's kindness to us in this next season, we look forward to receiving it as a gift and it is changing in many ways our daily reality, but we still long for that day. If there was a beatitude for us, maybe it would be, blessed are the parents of young children, for they shall be comforted. (laughs) Blessed are the parents of young children, for one day they shall sleep. (laughs) That's what Jesus says to us in this season. In the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying, blessed are those who do certain things so they can get a certain outcome. He's not saying blessed are those who go and try and find something to be mournful about so that you can be comforted. That's twisted logic, that makes no sense. That's not what he is saying. He's saying to us today, if you come in this morning and are mourning and your life is broken and you're weeping, he's saying you in this very place today are blessed. Why? Because you shall be comforted. He's saying you who are here today in this very moment who hunger and thirst after the things that are good and the things that are pure and the things that are true, you in this moment are blessed. Why? Even though you may not see it, that hunger and that thirst will be satisfied. Evil and injustice never win, and they never have the last word. Interesting point in light of this is the word meekness, as in blessed are the meek. I think in all of these couplets, meekness is the one we misunderstand the most. And I think meekness is why this often gets tied up with this picture of hippie Jesus. Because we assume meekness to be weak and passive, disengaged, unconcerned with the needs and the cares of the world and the things happening around us. But that in no way is what meekness means. And it's in no way what Jesus' listeners would have assumed because meekness, even in that day, had a very different meaning. It was connected to how we relate to one another. Even take the words of Aristotle. Aristotle said this. He said, the one who is truly meek is the one who becomes angry. The one who becomes angry on the right grounds, against the right person, in the right manner, at the right moments, and for the right length of time. 
And so we could say there is a meekness in Jesus' righteous anger as he turns over tables. And for us who say we want to be conformed into his likeness and image, for us then, we have to say, what does it look like for us then to be meek? When we see a world plagued by injustice and brokenness, you see the suffering in places like Syria and Sudan and countless others. Meekness is never an opportunity for us to turn a blind eye. The great abolitionist William Wilberforce said this. He said, there's no room to be idle. No room to be idle. There is so much misery to alleviate. And so for us as Christians, as we follow Jesus and we look out at the world and we say, where is your kingdom growing and where is it at work and where is it in need and where do you invite us to participate in that work? And we should have eyes to see it that transcend our political persuasions, they transcend our preferences, they transcend even things that promise comfort and benefit to us personally. Because we are called to give ourselves away freely. They say you're not meant to talk about politics in polite company, but as I said at the early service, I've already resigned. So, (laughs) with that, let's have a little fun. I think you would agree that at least in the last few decades, I've never seen our country so divided along ideological lines where we retreat into all of these different camps and do our best to avoid anyone who seems to think or act different than us because it's safe to do so. You see that culturally across the board, but if we are not careful, we run that very risk in the life of the church here today. By default, we as human beings group ourselves with people who are like us, don't we? People who have the same cultural background, people who like the same food as we do, people who follow the same sports teams like the NFC champion Atlanta Falcons (laughs) headed to the Super Bowl, people whose kids go to the same schools, whatever it may be, we group ourselves into these little clusters. And each of us here today have handfuls of different ways that we associate, but when we come together as the church, this is the one place in which all of those things take second place. And we say what unites us is that we are sons and daughters who know Jesus. We come to the rail, and what a beautiful picture that is as we kneel side by side as equals, as brothers and sisters who say, whatever our race, whatever our background, whatever our degree of wealth and influence and status may be, we come here to see Jesus and be reminded that our primary identity, first and foremost, is as a child of God who's known and loved by him. And yet, if we're not careful, the more and more that we retreat and close ourselves off from that which is different or things that we may fear, the less and less we are able to see the world primarily through the lens of God's kingdom. And we put other lenses as primary that are meant to be secondary. 
Hear me on this. We as Christians, we are pro-life not because it lines up with a given political party, but because it is a value of God's kingdom. We as Christians care for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the refugee, not because it lines up with our political persuasion, but because it is a value of God's kingdom, and that is our primary value. We are invited to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly before the Lord. And if our vision of God's kingdom is not primary and it gets lost down here in the mix of all these other camps that we find ourselves in, we will miss the work of God in our midst. But it is so tempting to do, to stay with people who have the exact same political views as we do, to talk to people who listen to the same news sources that we do, to let our social media feed whatever it may tell us today, to let that say, this is what matters, this is what's important, and we close ourselves off from those who are different and those who are other. And when we do that, we miss the fact that God's work in his kingdom transcends all of our categories. And it is to be found in unlikely and unexpected places. And he wants us as his church to have eyes to see it. We have a custom here in the season of Lent, which is quickly approaching, of giving out a resource, a prayer resource that we as God's people journey through Lent using it together. And this season, we're working on a form of daily prayer that has as a part of it these quotes from one of the great Christian classics, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis very famous devotional book. And as we were working on this, one of these quotes stood out to me. And so I'll share it with you as a bit of a preparation, a pre-Linton quote, we could say, but it speaks so clearly to this. Akempis says this, everyone gladly does whatever he most likes and likes best those who think as he does. But if God is to dwell among us, If God is to dwell among us, we must sometimes yield our own opinion for the sake of peace. Who is so wise that he knows all things? So do not place too much reliance on the rightness of your own views, but be ready to consider the views of others. Horizontally, for us, this is a fantastic quote. It reminds us that we are to walk humbly before God and with one another and be reminded that we should listen to others. Be mindful of how we relate to one another and say, with all humility, I don't have it all figured out. I need to hear from you. I'm not a finished product. But I think in the same way, this is a helpful quote for our vertical relationship with God because sometimes we do act like we're finished products. Like we're the ones in and of ourselves who have everything figured out and everyone else just needs to change. Not me, not us. One of my first bosses that I worked for said, we're all tempted to view others as flawed versions of ourselves. It's true, isn't it? We view others as flawed versions of ourselves. That's dangerous when we do that with one another. It is deadly when we do that towards God. 
when we act as though we're the ones who have it figured out and he's the one who needs to get on board with our platform and our plan. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 gives us a primary identity. It is the lens through which we make sense of the world, the lens through which we understand our place in the world and what the Lord is inviting us to do as a result. May God give us the grace and the humility to repent of ways we are blind to this. And may we have the humility to say, we're the ones who need to change, not you. Why is this so hard? We need to think about that. Why is this so hard? You've probably heard a dozen sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, and yet here we are again. Week by week, we come mindful that we haven't figured this out. We haven't lived this as we should. At a basic level, it's human nature, right? Human nature, we're turned in on ourselves. We love the things we shouldn't love. We desire things we shouldn't desire. As we confess week by week, we have done the things we ought not to have done and not done the things we should have done. And so at one level, it's universal, but I think it's also particular for us as well. For us here in America in 2017, this is hard for us because we aren't used to being reviled or persecuted. We aren't used to this. Jesus in the Beatitudes says, you who are persecuted and reviled on my account, you are blessed. And I think for most of us in this room, we don't know how to relate to those words. Not all of us, I imagine, especially we are a beautiful, global, and diverse family here at Christ Church. And some of you here today may know very well what those words feel like. And we need to learn from you and hear your voice and experience. But for most of us here today, we don't know what to do with this. Because to be a Christian in America has for a long time been a place of cultural power and prestige and influence. Where it's not just been accepted, but it's been a place of power. And yet I think we see signs all around us of cultural change that is underway where we move from a place of privilege and power to acceptance, to toleration, and even in parts of our country, rejection. Some of us have seen that firsthand. And if we are not so formed by this vision in Matthew 5, when trial and challenge and persecution comes, we will be swept away because our faith is weak and our faith is shallow. Are we willing to have St. Paul's words be our own? I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I think this week the Lord's inviting us to some honest self-reflection and self-assessment where we say before the Lord, this is who I am. And in these ways, I know my life is in alignment with your kingdom. In these ways, I know I'm living where your kingdom vision animates all that I do. But also where we say, this is who I am and I know it's not who I should be. I know it's not what you want from me and that I'm not yet finished. And that we give those parts of who we are to the Lord and say, would you give us the grace and the humility and the meekness to change and to live a different way? 
that we give him the ways that we cling to our power and our affluence and our comfort, whatever it may be. It may be different for each of us. But to be willing to say, I want your kingdom and your vision for what is true and good to animate everything I do. And anything else that I give myself to, any other badge or hat that I put on, it is secondary. It comes way down the list from what it means to be a son and a daughter in your kingdom. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, just as you opened your mouth so many years ago and preached these words to your hearers, those who are here today, would you refresh us again with your word? Would you be our teacher? And would you for us today bring comfort, bring consolation where it is needed to remind us in our trial that you are our hope and you are our peace? Yet would you also in your kindness bring conviction, show us the ways that we are not participating in the work of your kingdom and give us the courage to join you afresh in that work. We pray in your holy name.